This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Cheryl Henry and Andy Atkinson, young and in love. It was the summer of 1990. On August 22nd, the couple had parked off Enclave near Eldridge, then nicknamed Lover's Lane. When Cheryl didn't come home that morning, her family called police. Shortly afterwards, someone called them a security guard. I found her purse and shoes in her car, in her white car. Just 10 minutes later, relatives and friends were at the parkway well before Houston police. And when the dogs found Cheryl, officers had to keep her mother back. Cheryl had been raped, her throat cut. 21-year-old Andy was tied to a tree and nearly decapitated. Paul Violis is a CBS News security consultant, an accomplished author, and a renowned global security and law enforcement expert. With over 35 years of experience, he's dedicated his life to finding solutions for the problems that keep you up at night. This is Security Matters with Paul Violis. Welcome to Security Matters, where your security matters most. I'm Paul Violis, and this is a CBS News radio production. Big thank you to everyone writing us uh, over social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Still amazed how many people listen to all that stuff, but we are grateful for all the comments. Also, uh, please take a moment and go to cbsaudio.com for me and, and give us a quick uh, review because we always love your feedback. Um, today, a very, very important day, our fourth Fraternal Order of Police cold case. But today, today what makes it so special for the first time, Security Matters is broadcasting its cold case before a live audience, that's right. We are here today in the great city of Houston and we are gonna be covering a case that has been well known here for many, many years, actually back to 1990. A brief thank you though, because this clearly wouldn't have happened without a number of people. Uh, chief Acevedo and his command staff, a big thank you to the chief. Uh, also to Joe Gamaldi, who is the president of the Houston FOP and the vice president of the national FOP. Joe has been instrumental and making sure that this actually happened today. Also to Patrick Yose, who's the president of the National Fraternal Order Police, who made sure that we put this partnership together uh, between media and police. And for everyone here in our audience and for everybody listening, that was no easy task, but it was done. And it's a great message to everybody to show you how police and media can not just work together, but we can use the assets that we have to serve the country and to serve our communities with great more efficiency. So let's make sure we take that under advisement when we start thinking about stuff that we see on TV that's really, really important. Today, the Houston Police Department, it just amazes me, formed in 1841. It's a phenomenal department with great efficiency and respect, not just in the United States, but, but abroad. 5,300 sworn, 1,200 civilian, but the fifth largest. Now, everyone, seriously, I don't know if everybody in the country realizes this. I'm talking about the Houston Police Department, the fifth largest municipal police department serving the fourth largest city in America. If this is not a great city to start with our, um, our monthly on-site cold cases, I don't know what is. We could not feel more blessed, we could not be happier here at, at CBS News Radio to be starting everything here in the city of Houston. What's our goal? Uh, our goal is, as you have, you have heard, if, if, if you're not a first-time listener, um, you've heard this before, but our goal is to deputize America. The goal is to make sure that we understand what's going on in our country right now relative to police and relative to community. We've got about 700,000 cops. We're about 22% down right now uh, for reasons I won't even get into because it would require another show and a half. But the point is that we have departments like the Houston Police Department that are reaching out, that are saying that they could use some help in solving a case. So this is your time, America. This is your time to dial. 
This is your time to listen. Lean into what you're going to hear today. We have phenomenal public servants that are seated at this table today, and they're going to share the most intimate parts of this case, a fascinating case. But the one thing that we need to remember is we need you to listen to this, and then we need you to take this under advisement, spread the word, and generate leads, legitimate leads, to the Houston Police Department that they can use in the furtherance of this investigation. That is what we're doing here today. That is the most important part. Uh, joining me here today uh, on the panel, we have Chief William Dobbins. Now, uh, Chief Dobbins, I'm so glad that Chief, Chief joined today because, and he, you're going to hear from him shortly, but he was a patrol officer in 1990. He was a patrol officer, and he responded to this scene. Now, he's the commander of the Criminal Investigations Command, for the Houston Police Department, he's sitting with us today. So having him here today is, is a great gift. And, and then, of course, we have Lieutenant Melissa Countryman and Lieutenant Countryman with the Homicide Division, Sergeant Mike Miller. Sergeant Miller, again, with, uh, also with Homicide, but Sergeant Miller is going to take us from the genesis of this case, the response and the investigation and how it was handled and everything about that, including our victims. And he's going to take us right to the point where Detective Darkest Shorten is going to join us, and Detective Shorten is going to tell us how she caught the case, what she's done with it, and most importantly, what she's doing with it now, what she expects, and this is where you come in, everyone that's listening, what she's going to need, the information she needs to help solve this case. Let there be no mistake about this. We have two victims, Cheryl Henry and Garland Andy Atkinson. And they deserve justice. They have not received justice yet, they deserve justice. And their families, their, their families deserve justice and they deserve closure. And you listening right now, you have the ability to bring that information to HPD. So I implore you to sit back right now, whether you're driving, whether you're on a train, no matter where you're at, sitting in front of your computer, what's important is let's take all this information in. I'm gonna take you back to August 22nd, 1990. And in a case that has been referred to as the Lover's Lane case. And before I, I, I kick this off by tossing to Chief Dobbins, I'm going to ask um, Lieutenant Countryman to tell us about the city of Houston, Houston Police Department. But Lieutenant, how does HPD work cold cases? And where do you take that from the time it becomes a cold case, the personnel that are assigned to it? How does that work? So basically what happens is that we get tips that come in, and they can be through phone, through voicemail, personal phone calls, or through emails. And what we'll do is go through the case, look at it, my sergeant will look at it and see if there's any solvability factors is what we're looking for. Um, does, somebody, does somebody need to be spoken to again? Did somebody not get located at the time? Is there evidence that can be tested, evidence that can be retested with new DNA technology that we have? And so that's kind of the catalyst for us um, when it comes to working cold cases. Nothing ever truly gets cold. Um, a murder, if it's not solved, it always stays active. There's times, unfortunately, you don't have that many people to be able to work at the time, but everything stays on our list. We always try to work everything that we can. Is it a fair statement that, that, that HPD will not give up on a case until it's completely closed? That's a completely true statement. And, and you know, the, the thing that I, I really want to emphasize there is not just for every, the, to, the, to the citizens in the great city of Houston to, and, and to the state of Texas, but to, to communities all over the country, Lieutenant. And that's why I really want to emphasize that point because all too often, the media, movies, television, destroy that image. Mm -hmm. and, 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 I, and, and a message to our, to our audience here in Houston that, that's so important that I'll, I'll, I'll drop this in, is that sometimes families and friends are, are grieving so hard that they may not realize, and it's because of that grief that sometimes they may not realize the extent that the police are actually working the case. And it's understandable. When you lose a, when you lose a loved one, you lose a loved one. And these cases are not... You know, some of them are missing persons, some of them that we just can't find. This is a brutal case. So what we need to understand, and not just here in, in Houston, but everywhere across the country, is what Lieutenant Countryman said is the benchmark of what we're going to take right now. The police department, specifically here the city of Houston, never gives up on a case. 
That's staffing. Those are detectives that are paid to make sure they continuously look for information to solve a case. So we need to set that record straight. So Lieutenant, I really appreciate you, you, you doing that. Well, thank you for having me. Believe me when I tell you this is so, so very important. I'm gonna toss to Chief William Dobbins right now. Now Chief, here's the fascinating thing. Um, I started my career in 1980, so I can, I can, I can appreciate this. You are a, a chief of the Criminal Investigations Command of one of the largest police departments in America, and in in the fourth largest city in America, but yet you remember August 22nd, 1990, like it was yesterday. Take us back to that. Yeah, so uh, first, let me thank everybody in the audience for being here. Appreciate you taking time out of your day. Uh, this is an important thing for us to go through this exercise. Uh, I want to thank the chief, Chief Acevedo, and our mayor, Sylvester Turner, for, for helping us do this. I think it's, uh, it's something good we should do, and I hope that this, uh, this goes into other cases in other cities as well, and I hope we have some success in this case. Uh, let me start by saying I'm assistant chief, like you said, over Criminal Investigations Command. Uh, in my command is Homicide Division, which is the division that handles our missing persons, and I mean handles our uh, cold cases, and uh, they are the, the investigative unit that investigates these cases. So, but years back, I was over Homicide Division itself, and I'm going to walk you through that, that in just a second. But let's go back to 1990 when I was a young officer. Uh, I got on the department in 85. Uh, so in 1990, I was still a pretty young officer, five years on. I'd been to many scenes involving death, involving homicide, involving fatality accidents. Uh, so uh, as happens in most officers' young career, you see a lot uh, the first few years, and, and a lot of it is disturbing, uh, but you just learn to deal with it. Uh, this particular case uh, was different than all of that. Uh, I remember the night that it occurred. Uh, these two individuals, we call it Lover Lane, Lover's Lane murder because the location where this murder occurred was out. Today, there's houses everywhere, but back in 1990, there were no houses out there at all. It was just streets that were developed in an area that was going to be developed into neighborhoods. But at the time, it was just a, res it was just a rural area with, with paved streets, lights, uh, and it was in West Houston. So on the night of the incident, uh, I recall that hearing the call drop, uh, hearing uh, the first arriving officer that got to the scene, and you could tell by the radio transmissions immediately that it was disturbing. It was disturbing to the officer that made that scene. He asked for backup to come out there, and they did. Uh, I, was, I was working other calls that night uh, in a different area, uh, but the scene just continued to grow, and more officers went out there because the arriving officer that got there uh, needed help. So I'm not going to go into all the specifics of the scene, but I'll say that a little bit later in the night, I did make my way over to that scene to, uh, to provide assistance and to help the officers that were already there. And it was extremely disturbing, despite seeing death in all different ways uh, and fatality accidents and, and such. Uh, this was just something that really, really stuck in an officer's mind. Uh, it was a disturbing scene how it laid out, not just the murders of the two young individuals, but just how the entire scene was laid out and, and how the crime scene looked. Chief, let me ask you something. Now, you, you've been a, a, a law enforcement officer for over 30 years, but this case sticks out. Now, you, I can't even imagine how many cases you've worked over that time, but why does this one stick out so much? Yeah, so uh, it's actually 35 if we're going to give our age, uh, 35 years. But <laughs> I got you at 40 but, on that. Yeah, yeah. Only you got a lot more hair than I do, Chief. <laughs> <laughs> <Just, laughs> it's leaving. Uh, but no, really because a couple of factors. One is, is I was in my, I, I, in my 20s, right? These victims were in their 20s. Uh, the area that they were found at was an area that oftentimes people went. Uh, just to be honest, Parkers went out there and, and young people went out there, right? Because it was, an, it was an area that didn't have much population out there. And secondly, we knew pretty early on that these individuals had left a club in our area uh, and gone out there. And, uh, and, and so all of it was just so familiar with me as a young 20-year-old or 20-some-odd-year-old officer uh, that these were my age. These were people that I would know if I went to a club. These were people that I would associate with when, when I was out uh, mm -hmm. and off duty. So it was just really disturbing their age, the location where it occurred, the fact that, that they were actually just out there doing absolutely nothing wrong and they were victimized like this. And then once again, I'll, I'll let the investors go into a little bit more detail uh, because it still obviously is an active case, but the scene was just extremely disturbing how the murder laid 
carried out on both individuals. You know, it's interesting you say that, Chief, and I, I'm, I'm going to toss here to Sergeant Miller in a second, but it's interesting you say that because you're talking about a 35-year career in one of the largest cities in the country. It's changed dramatically from the demographic of its population. You've seen, I can't even imagine how much you've seen in 35 years, but yet this one still sticks in the center of your core. Yeah, I mean, I can still see it very vividly, uh, the, entire, the entire scene and how it laid out. Uh, I remember that morning going home, and as, as most officers do, uh, you know, you tell your family thing. At that time, it was just my wife. And I remember talking to her about the incident and telling her just how unbelievably uh, disturbing what I saw out there was and how this just was not a normal murder. This was a really, really, if I can be honest, it was just a weird, odd murder, how it occurred. Mm -hmm. It just was, it, murders are bad, and, and, and victims of murder, it's a tragedy, but this one was just so uh, different than anything I'd seen before. So I, I went home, I talked to my wife about it. Uh, she's, to this day, she remembers that case. She remembers the Lover's Lane case. So uh, just a little bit moving forward throughout my career, uh, I go to different assignments throughout the department, do different jobs over the last 35 years. Uh, and, and as luck would have it, I promoted up through the, uh, the command. And at one point I became a captain uh, and I was placed over homicide division. Uh, and when I first arrived at homicide division, I'll never forget, it was maybe the first week, if for sure the first month, but maybe even the first week I was there, uh, the lieutenant that had uh, Melissa's position when I was there in 2016, he was over cold cases. And the first thing I asked him is I said, hey, you ever heard of a case uh, that they used to call the Lover's Lane case. Have you ever heard of that case? You may think I'm crazy. He goes, are you kidding me? Everybody's heard of that case. He said, everybody that comes to homicide wants to solve that case. And he said, it's still active. It hasn't been solved, and we still have it. And I said, well, you know, go, go get me that case. I want to read that case. Uh, and it was extremely thick uh, and a very large case, obviously, over the years because all the dis different detectives that have worked on it. Mm -hmm. But I did. I, I, it was that interesting to me to see and to read that case, and it all came back uh, the night and, and some of the details about what had taken place to these two poor individuals. And it, it was something that resonated even when I was a captain over homicide. Well, I can tell you, Chief, I don't think you could tee that up any better for Sergeant Miller. Sergeant, uh, take us back to August 22nd, 1990, when you first caught this case, and let's tell our audience right now everything you remember from the time you caught it, you started working it, our victims. I certainly will. Um, thank you, Paul, and, and CBS Radio Chief, uh, and everybody that's had anything to do with getting this case more exposure. Uh, as Paul said, my name is Mike Miller. I'm a, I'm a police officer. I work in the homicide division. Uh, I've been there for uh, about 23 years of my 27 years. Um, we've done releases before on this case, um, but we've never done a format like this, and, and that's why we appreciate this type of exposure. Um, and, and if nothing else comes of this, which I believe is not going to be the case, it puts all of us detectives in a room and we start bouncing ideas off of each other, and, and we come up with new ideas, uh, and I think that's, that's, that's going to be the case today. Um, retired Executive Assistant Chief George Bunick, after reading the case file, said, wow, this is an all-star cast of detectives that worked on this case in the past. Uh, he was right. It, it is a who's who of detectives. Um, and, and I'm honored to be a part of one of those detectives, a small part uh, that's working on this case. And hopefully one day we'll bring this, this case to a closure. Um, <clears throat> Paul has asked me that I bring you guys back to August 1990. Um, while I was thinking of that and preparing what I, what I did here today, uh, I thought, wow, I'm going to have to boil down a 30-year investigation into about 15, 20 minutes, which I prepared for. Uh, I, I'm going to have to, th there's a lot of information here. Uh, I have a, a visual uh, mm -hmm. that we'll go through, uh, so please bear with me, and, and I'll begin by taking us back to 1990. Take us back. Um, th this case, like I said, and like everybody's already said, uh, Lover's Lane, it, 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 it's become a legendary case that epitomizes what a cold case investigation is, and it defines an investigative division second to none. It contains all the hallmarks that are required, but is missing one important element. The killer isn't in jail. Not yet. Some of the best and brightest detectives to work in the Houston Police Department's Homicide Division have worked on this, this case, Lover's Lane, and they've worked it in a manner that has transcended generations of, of other great detectives. As of this date, Lover's Lane, the Lover's Lane investigation has been actively investigated for 29 years and 146 days. I was one of those detectives that, that this torch was handed off to, not one of the best or brightest, but certainly a detective that learned from those best and brightest. Additionally, without the support, guidance, and counsel from the FBI during, <clears throat> during this 29-year investigation, the progress made wouldn't have been possible. 
Part of my job, like I said, is to bring you back to 1990. I'm going to do my best. So, so like I said, bear with me. DNA was an entry-level piece of evidence uh, in criminal investigations with its origin beginning in England in 1986. George H.W. was our president. Iraq had just invaded Kuwait, and the cost of a first-class stamp, uh, first stamp was $0.25. Cents. And a violent dub, double murder forever dubbed Lover's Lane rocked a city notorious uh, for unsolved murder mysteries, a, a case that shocked the most hardened homicide detectives, a case that easily surpasses all other cases ever worked in the homicide division in longevity, hours worked, and suspects cleared. <clears throat> a case I always encourage rookie detectives to read, assuming they have the energy to get through the massive files, endless reports, and hundreds of tips. A case so large in its nearly 30 years of work, it's contained in several massive boxes, like the chief said, routinely dusted off to re-examine pictures showing the youthful exuberance of our victims, 22-year-old Cheryl Henry and 21-year-old Andy Atkinson. <clears throat> that box also contains graphic, grotesque crime scene photos documenting the absolute worst of humanity and the last moments of Cheryl and Andy's lives. Folks, this is a terrible story. Um, there's no question about it. This, this is a bad Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, I, I inherited this case from my retiring partner at the time, Sergeant Billy Belk, who was a former cold case detective and who worked the initial, initial investigation. Sergeant Belk was one of those best and brightest detectives who worked the count with countless other detectives on this investigation. They taught the younger generations how to work murder cases, including this one. I've read this report, listened to the interviews, and examined the evidence hundreds of times. I've lived the scene vicariously by talking to those first detectives who explained while foraging through the woods they were being bitten by mosquitoes, dealing with limited visibility, media inquiries, and of course, very emotional families. They told me how they initially came upon Cheryl's body and how they found Andy the next day. Those detectives explained what it was like to view such a gruesome scene, as Chief Dobbins explained, and what it was like to live with this unsolved case. Those detectives are retired, uh, are all retired and gone, but this case is still being worked, as Paul said, because those retired detectives haven't forgotten, the families certainly haven't forgotten, and neither have we. The, to, to go into Cheryl and Andy's lives back then, um, Andy uh, was 21 years old, Cheryl was 22 years old. It was young love. It was, it was a budding romance. Um, they had their entire life in front of them. Um, we all can remember. It, it was one of those things. They first met <clears throat> while she was home for the summer from Stephen F. Austin State University, Nacogdoches. Andy had recently moved to Houston area from North Carolina where he completed a semester at Campbell University before deciding to relocate closer to his father's family. Andy found a job at Gold's Gym on the Gulf Freeway and moved in with his grandmother in Meyerland. He'd only known Cheryl for a couple of weeks when he first met her uh, for a date on that, that day, Wednesday, August 22, 1990, at Bayou Mama's with her sister, Shane Henry, at 10.45 p.m. That date and that time and that restaurant are forever etched in, in our memories. That evening at Bayou Mama's was the last time Shane would ever see her sister alive. Thursday, August 23, 1990, at 7.15 p.m., when Cheryl didn't return home, her family contacted HPD and filed a missing persons report. Shane told the officer, Officer Uger, she and Cheryl left the residence at 6.40 p.m. on August 22nd and drove to Cafe Adobe on Shepherd. They then left for Bayou Mama's, located at 64 Woodlake Square, where they were to meet Cheryl's boyfriend, Andy. At 10.45, Andy did show up, and Andy had agreed to give Cheryl a ride home. So Shane left. Same day, 11.20 p.m. Cheryl Henry's body was discovered at 1300 Enclave Parkway by HPD K-9 unit Steve Ash. Name might sound familiar. Yeah. Uh, and on the same day, evening shift detectives Sergeant Ted Bloyd and Sergeant William Billy Belk were assigned this investigation. Homicide detectives drove directly to Enclave Parkway and they found a very brutal scene. Belk described to me, Sergeant Belk described to me the area where their bodies were discovered was a wooded area of western Harris County and a yet-to-be-developed business park with lakes, ducks, privacy, known to locals as Lover's Lane. This area had several open fields dotted with thick woods and lakes that proved the perfect hideaway for young lovers wanting to be alone. Belk learned a security guard from ABM Security named Thomas Hooper had spotted Andy's parked, unoccupied Honda CRX with North Carolina plates at 5 p.m. 
Hooper didn't call anybody. He just noted the vehicle's position. He circled back about three hours later, and he noticed that that vehicle was located in the same spot. Hooper walked up on the vehicle. He investigated. He saw blood on the driver's side armrest and found Cheryl's purse and wallet, and you can see it in the slide, um, sitting in the vehicle. It was very unusual for him. He called his supervisor at 8 p.m. After the security guard found the vehicle, Sergeant Belk and Sergeant Bloyd found anxious family members converging on the scene, along with patrol cars, helicopters, police on horseback, dogs, and an army of media, police dogs, and an army of media. Past detectives and current detectives, myself included, believe the killer came up behind Cheryl and Andy while they were simply sitting in Andy's car listening to music. That's all they were doing. It remains unknown if this assailant only had a knife or a gun, or a knife and a gun, but he somehow managed to gain control of Andy and Cheryl and forced them out to the wooded area hundreds of yards from their car. Cheryl's body. <clears throat> her clothes were cut from her body, transferring some blood, what we learned was Andy's blood, uh, onto the undergarments that the killer cut off her body. Um, that told us that, um, that, that Andy was the first victim of this killer that night. Sergeant, they were cut off, they yes, weren't ripped off? they were cut off. Okay, so either the killer had some type of device with him or he took it from the vehicle? He, he had a knife with him, a very sharp knife. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and in doing so, he did transfer some of Andy's blood to Cheryl's undergarments. And we had that tested. So in all likelihood, he, he went after Andy first, incapacitated him, and then went after Cheryl. Absolutely. Okay. Cheryl was sexually assaulted before her neck was slashed three times. <clears throat> she was then covered, as you can see, with the planks, which is kind of odd, um, like fence planks from a broken fence. Her hands were found behind her back with a common type of hemp rope. She was 22 years old. Andy's body. Uh, the next day, Friday, it was, it was late when the initial body was found, Cheryl's. The next day, Friday, August 24th, police dogs found Andy's body tied to a tree about 50 yards from Cheryl's body. Um, Andy's, How did they find him? The police dogs found Andy's body. It was a thick wooded area. Andy Atkinson's body was found at 9.15 a.m. The investigators at the time were able to determine that the assailant sat Andy with his back to the base of a tree, and you have to use your imagination. You can see from the picture that there, there's a, a hemp rope going around the tree. So what the killer did was sat Andy down with his hands bound behind his back and then put the piece of hemp rope around his neck tightly and then bound that around the tree, make it impossible for him to stand up. Once this coward killer, cowardly killer subdued and restrained Andy, he slashed Andy's throat with a knife. Andy was found with his hands bound behind his back and his throat gashed so deeply that it nearly severed his head. He was 21 years old. 1990 police investigation of Lover's Lane. At, at the time of their investigation, there were no eyewitnesses. Um, they had very little physical evidence to go off of other than the semen sample that was found during a sexual assault of Cheryl Henry. DNA profiling, as I mentioned, was in its infancy, and the HPD crime lab had yet to set up necessary technology. Hundreds of interviews were conducted, dozens of suspects cleared by DNA, and thousands of leads followed. Even the most optimistic detectives began to doubt the infamous Lover's Lane case would ever be solved. But the investigators received a call they had been waiting on for 17 years, a CODIS match. Tell our audience what CODIS is. CODIS is a national database that we routinely use to put uh, convicted offenders into this database. Uh, it stands for Combined DNA Index System, also known in its acronym form as CODIS. So, Sergeant, so that everyone listening understands, this is one of many tools that police departments use across the United States to collaborate in the investigative efforts and to share information so that you may be looking at somebody in the city of Houston and in Topeka, Kansas, they may be looking for the same guy. And this CODIS system, if I'm, right, if I'm correct, the CODIS system expedites that communication and connects you both. Is that correct? You're absolutely correct. Okay, thank you. um, once that, once that, that, that sample of DNA extracted from the sexual assault of Cheryl Henry is entered into CODIS, um, we've, we've called it like a slot machine. I mean, if, if a match is made, and, and I'll go into that a little bit, uh, a case-to-case -case match or perhaps a case-to-a-suspect match. And in this case, uh, I'll talk about it. Um, it, this was a case-to-case -case match, uh, which is not the best, but it gives us another case to look at. A and I'm going to go into that other case right now. Um, on, on June 20th, 
So we're, we're, we're done with Lover's Lane temporarily, and I'm going to talk about the case-to-case -case match. On June 20th, 1990, a, a female named Charlene Kay was sexually assaulted in her home at 7800 Terracotta. She was taken to the hospital where a sexual assault examination was performed on her. In her exam, the doctors extracted DNA left by the attacker and provided it to the police. The sexual assault kit and the DNA uh, were then provided to CODIS, and it was out of the hands of the Harris County homicide detectives. Her sexual assault happened in Harris County outside of, of Houston Police Department's jurisdiction. Okay. Um, the CODIS match ultimately ma the, the CODIS ultimately matched the DNA from Charlene's sexual assault on Terracotta with the DNA extracted from Cheryl Henry, and it was an absolute match. So we're looking at the same person. It's the same killer. But I've got to jump in real quick, though, because I'm old, and I'm going to forget if I don't say this, even though I've written it down. The thing that's sticking out for me right now, Sergeant, and I've got to ask you this. A security guard in the middle of nowhere, we're just looking at this picture, but those of you just listening, we had a picture up here. In the middle of nowhere, was that security guard hired to patrol that area? He was. He was. Okay. And we looked at him hard as well. In fact, that was when the investigation was handed to me, uh, we actually met with Thomas Hooper. Um, he lived out in Katy, and, and we talked with him, and, and, of course, he was cleared by DNA as well. Okay. The problem, if you want to call it a problem, is the results or the match between the two cases wasn't provided to us until September 27, 2007. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was actually uh, the partner who initially got me into Lover's Lane. That was when he was retiring. It was sort of his retirement gift to me, if you will. Not only was Charlene's sexual assault DNA matched, but it occurred on June 20th. Lover's Lane occurred on June 22nd. 63 days later, uh, I think everybody could imagine that it would have been nice to have that sample back in the day and found that this guy was prolific enough to commit two attacks on two different individuals 63 days apart. You don't have to be a detective to know and recognize a pattern. It also answered some questions that we had with regard to how this attacker handled Cheryl and Andy. That's one of the questions over the years that's always been posed to me. How did one guy, assuming it's one guy and we don't know for sure, but if it was one guy, how did he control two folks, two people? How do you do that? Well, you could do that with a handgun if he had a handgun, this attack told us that. I tracked down Charlene uh, and asked for her cooperation in our case. Now this is 17 years later. Do you think she was a little upset that we were finally getting around to her? Uh, she told me she had left her job at Gigi's Men's Club. It's, it's a, a, a gentleman's club. Uh, I've always found that to be an oxymoron, personally, but that, <laughs> that's another subject. I just had to throw that in. Anyway, I'm sorry. A little background into Charlene was she cooperated with us, and it, it gave us a huge leg up in this case. She had worked at the men's club. She left at about 2 a.m. This, of course, was on June 20th, 1990, and returned to her house on Terracotta. She, at the time, was dating an airline pilot uh, named Randy. Uh, they'd lived in the residence for about two weeks when this incident occurred. Randy was traveling, so Charlene, she ate some takeout food in the living room and she walked upstairs uh, to her bedroom. Suddenly a guy, she told me, popped out of the bedroom door holding a pistol. So this guy, the DNA match, this guy, the attacker, Charlene's attacker, had a pistol on him 63 days uh, later. So we, 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 you can assume that he probably had the same pistol. Right. The burglar and soon to be rapist wore fishnet stocking over his face, black gloves and a dark shirt and pants that matched, possibly a uniform. He held a long barrel handgun in his left hand. Uh, the suspect asked Cheryl, or Charlene, I'm sorry, where's Randy, Returned, referring to her boyfriend by name. The man then taunted Charlene by putting the gun to her head and cocking it. Um, he, he felt pretty comfortable doing what he was doing, which again makes us believe that he was comfortable doing what he was doing. Uh, he bound her hands behind her back with gray duct tape. Sounds similar, doesn't it? Uh, before taking cash from her purse. Then he duct taped her eyes, mouth closed, and threw her in a bed and shoved a pillowcase over her head. Charlene told me her attacker became very vulgar with her while he was raping her and told her uh, that she wasn't very observant. He had on possibly a military uniform. It sounded like, according to her, that he was trying to throw her off the fact that he might have been wearing a security guard uniform, Charlene said. So you can see where we're sort of building off of what Charlene's telling us. Charlene is a living victim, and she's given us a window into who this guy is, and uh, eyesight. After he finished, the man ordered Charlene to the floor. He said he may be in the house four or five minutes. Uh, she discovered that he disconnected the phone, put the receiver under the mattress. Charlene did what anybody would do that just experienced something like this. She called the police. Harris County responded at 4.25 a.m. They found her in the front yard screaming. Um, they, they worked the case. Uh, Charlene was hysterical. Uh, they interviewed her, and, and they took her to the hospital to have a sexual assault uh, examination performed on her. 
Uh, she told her attackers, and this is one of the key parts about Charlene's sexual assault, that he was a white male. He was in his mid-30s, he had olive compl complexion, and he wore stocking over his head during her attack. But she told us that he had brown hair and may have a mustache. Harris County did work this investigation. They worked it aggressively, but they came up empty on suspects or clues. Enclave Parkway and Terracotta were Charlene's sexual assault. They're about 15.9 miles uh, away from each other. Um, the composite and Charlene's cooperation, she, she, she came in and she provided a, a, a composite sketch to uh, our, our, our sketch artist, Lois, Lois Gibson. Um, and, and initially, we, we were very, very excited about this. Um, it, it was one of those things, that, okay, now we have a picture of this guy. And, and that's exactly what she gave us, which, you know, you work with what you have. You, you can wish all day long, but you work with what you have. Um, later on, uh, we opted to age the composite based on the time lapse that had, had happened since the attack. Thought it'd be a good idea um, just to see where we were at. Um, we, we received a lot of phone calls, but not nearly what we received uh, when America's Most Wanted reached out. They wanted to do a segment on this. We traveled there. We, we did a reenactment of, of Lover's Lane uh, for a national audience, and, uh, and we got lots of tips, lots of tips for, for the next eight months. Uh, and we continually get tips, um, but so far nothing's panned out. Um, to add to the mystery of Lover's Lane, and I'll only touch on this for a little bit, uh, the initial investigators got a letter, uh, a letter actually mailed to the Homicide Division. When the Homicide Division was 8,300 Makawa, for the, for the guys that remember, for, we went from 61 Reasoner to 8,300 Makawa and then to 1,200 Travis. They were at 8,300 Makawa. A letter was sent to the Homicide Division, and the letter said, and I'll quote, HPD, if you want to know who killed C. Henry and A. Atkinson, it will cost $100,000. Reply Houston Chronicle personnel column, 31201 only. A lawyer will be hired to make sure you play straight. <clears throat> this letter, and, and, and you know this, Paul, uh, mm -hmm. working investigations and, and high-profile investigations like this, you get people coming out of the woodwork. Absolutely. And we absolutely have to use a filter when we're dealing with these folks. Um, and, and, and not to say that, uh, that we have an option as investigators. We had to follow through with this, as we do all leads. Uh, but the public made a big deal out of this, and they thought, they thought that there was something to this, that somebody had the information. Um, there was a fingerprint that was lifted from the exterior of the letter, and, and some of the old retired guys in here will, will remember the name. It came back to a homicide lieutenant who had handled the letter, Murray Smith. Um, obviously not our killer. Nothing came of the lick stamp either. Um, it, it, was, it was one of those things that was, was shocking to them, and, uh, but nothing that came out of it. Kind of like the rest of, uh, of everything, and that's where we're, where we're at today, is hoping that this, this exposure um, gets us to where we need to be. That's an excellent description, Sergeant. Thank you so much. Now, D Detective Dark is short and picked this case up. Um, Detective, you, you picked this case up then subsequent to when Sergeant Miller had it. Tell us when you got it, what you started with, and as you look to the future, what information do you need right now? Well, I tell you, you can listen to um, both the narrative from um, the chief and the narrative from um, Detective Miller that this was a very, very extensive case. And when Sergeant Miller talked about the great minds that processed this case, that's an understatement. So when you look at this in its totality, what do we must do when we're in cold case? We have to find those gaps. And one of the things that I was looking for were in the indicators, indicators from the scene, indicators from the suspect, indicators from any other evidence that was not processed. What are those indicators that's gonna allow us to find that gap? So to answer your question, yes, where we were looking for gaps in the case, I was specifically looking for gaps in the case because the thorough work, the base of the work had been completed. We knew that we had a blessing in this case by having that CODIS hit. Right. That CODIS hit was a game changer in this whole investigation. What did that tell you though? Well, one of the great things that um, uh, Sergeant Belk did when in the embryonic stages of this investigation was get the FBI involved. They, that's VICAP, that is a violent apprehension program that will, like a, a, a database of all of the bizarre cases and the bizarre scenes and right. those bizarre things that the chief said he observed, that's not natural. Right. If, when we work homicide to its extent, 
and we do this on a continuous basis. We know the difference between, and I hate to use this word, normal homicides, which means it's either a drug deal or it's a sexual assault or a domestic violence. But when you shift that behavior. That moves more to the serial it behavior. It moves more to a serial behavior. So I have to ask you though, Detective, yes. when you picked this from CODIS and you started looking at the comparison, did you shift to start thinking that maybe we're looking at a primary rapist, subsequent murderer? Exactly, because I haven't dealt with um, those type of dynamics, even here in Houston when we had the Acres Home serial killer case. Right. We knew that we had an offender with the DNA match from sexual assault, so that means that our victims are talking, and then we had a DNA match to the deceased. Placing those two variables together are extremely important because what it tells you, it tells you the story. It tells you a story of what your offender is doing. How is he reacting? And when the FBI came in in the early 90s and did a VICAP report on this case, it provided and it substantiated those indicators that we were looking at. Well, what are those indicators? That I have an offender that is bold enough, arrogant enough, and impulsive enough that he can not only commit, not only commit a longevity crime. What is a longevity crime? That means that he took time with the sexual assault victim. That's arrogance. He took his time. He taunted her. He produced a weapon. He clicked a weapon. He did everything that he possibly could to intimidate this female victim. What kind of person does that? In your experience, Detective, what kind of person does you that? You know, this is a person who has, this is not his first time. Did he know them? Yes. Did he stalk them, know I, them, I, or did he know them personally? What, think, what's your gut tell you? I think, now, now, when you look at the whole totality of the case, not only are you profiling your offender, but we must also profile our complainant. And that's one of the ways and one of the indicators that VICAP does. VICAP looks at the actual, and we use the word victim, and that's what the FBI used, the word victim. Tell us about this victim. Was she or he a high-risk victim? Did they participate in any activity or anything that was known that will provide them the opportunity? And you hate to use that word provide, but they place themselves in a particular okay. vulnerable category. So let's, let's start with Cheryl. Did anything about Cheryl's life or employment, anything, would that put her in that category? You know what, sometimes it's not the actions that you do, it's the, it's the stalking slash fantasizing, fantasizing of an individual that may be an impetus towards something. Right. And because Cheryl was bright, she was full of life, if you talk to her family, that was just her standard of personality, um, working in a, in a restaurant-type field. So what does that tell you? That tells you that there's a lot of people. The problem is this. No, we don't know who's watching us. Right. We don't know exactly what the reason or the motive for certain things are. And in this particular case, that was one of those high-point issues. What is the motive to this case? What was the impetus for this to occur? And I find this interesting, you're saying that, because it makes me think back to second that Sergeant Miller said, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he commented the, the perpetrator involved in in Charlene Kent's case, asked the question, where's Randy? So he knew both of them, and he w also had some type of idea then, if I'm understanding this correctly, as to where that guy should be at that time. We, we developed a theory um, that this guy had, he, he actually broke into Charlene's home and that he'd been there some time. And, and our theory was, and, and everybody's got a theory, is that he had enough time to go through um, uh, the closet and he found uniforms and he was going to play that against Charlene for and, and toying with with her like he was okay. doing okay there was nothing else to indicate to us that he knew Charlene or Randy um, aside from the things that he said and 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 we just read that he had enough time to go through the closet but but going back now detective short and what you were saying about people and patterns and people watching and stalking that seems to be there could be some common ground then in addition to uh, the CODIS match with respect to the behavior of our victims and the behavior of our unsub. 
Exactly, and, okay. and, and, and when you talk about you know, the process of, in, of investigating a cold case, if we do not look at those dynamics, we have to trust the seeing, smelling, hearing eyes of the initial investigator. They were there, they saw it, they felt it. They described it in detail, what it was that just kept them up at night. So you have to trust that in this most embryonic stage. So when you take it and you put it, place it in a cold case investigation, we have to almost turn it around and look at it in a more variable point. So um, look, this, this, this case um, has been worked in such detail that one of the things that I wanted to do is look at the suspect pool. Then I realized there were over 50 identified individuals from the time of this case to the time that I got it, and that number has increased. One of the things that I wanted to look at was how, was, how did they include or exclude these individuals? Okay. That is very, very important. So you look back at it and you see, okay, well, back in the 90s, the only way that you could exclude someone is through blood type and through polygraph tests or your alibi. And now we have to look at expanding that and doing more complex DNA testing. What is more complex DNA testing? Well, it's, 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 it's emerging daily. And this is the transition part of cold case, the transition part of what we're doing. We're taking the old, we're developing it in the middle, and we, en we are enhancing through, to, uh, through new technology. So where do you plan on taking this forward? What, what, what are your next steps? What are you looking for? What would be the ideal information as you start to take all of these old pieces and these new pieces and start to put this puzzle closer together? What is Detective Shorten looking for right now? What would help you most? Listen, I, 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 I have to be smart in the investigation. And being smart in the investigation is using your what? Using your evidence. Um, when we have people that are, are individuals that call in and say, he looks like my neighbor, that's okay. And it's okay if we knock and talk, but that resource of doing so is not long-term effective. So we have to be smart and we have to develop our case to meet the standards of technology. Okay. And if we are going to do that, my next step is to use that technology and use that enhancing DNA to give us an answer. So what's your next step? What are you looking for? Where, what's your gut tell you about this case? What's your gut tell you about this unsub? Listen, I've gotten tips saying that it, it's the, the, young man, the young men that did the Austin yogurt killing to the Zodiac. I get the bizarre types of tips all the time. The end game of all of this is to use the evidence now listen, this case has been, been, been blessed with, a, with, with some very substantial information. We have a walking, talking individual who not only was a victim of this suspect, but also can give us additional information. So doing a forensic interview with the sexual assault victim, pulling, extracting more information from her is probably one major step. Perfect, now let me ask you another question. Uh, in interviewing Charlene, you were able to get a, a, a sketch, a police yes. sketch. Yes. Okay. And, and Charlene looked at that sketch and she said, yes, that, that, that's what he looked like. Exactly. Okay. So we have that, right? Yes. So what we're going to be doing now to our audience across the country is we are going to use the power of, of, of our CBS News Radio brand and we're going to get this picture out everywhere. And we want it in every community. We want it all over, not just, not just in Houston, we want it all over Texas, we want it everywhere in the United States. We are looking for this particular guy. Because, just to sum this up, according to what the sergeant said, we got a CODIS match. Yes. You looked at it, detective, you say we have a CODIS match. Yes. We've got a living, as you just said, we have a living, breathing witness that's identifying our unsub to that's what it looks like. Yes. We also know that this primary objective here was rape and sexual assault and violent and vindictive. Yes. And this was not the first or second time he did it. Yes. So I am gonna say this, that someone listening right now knows exactly who this guy is. And the city of Houston and the Houston Police Department are showing the exceptional nature 
of how they do police work, and they're stepping up and saying, we need your help. So we're going to present this information across the board, and we expect, and I'm talking to everyone right now in America, I expect you to step up. I expect you to step up. That's right. I expect you to get involved. People that want to sit around and they want to talk all day long about what police do and police don't do, I'm throwing this at you. This is coming from me. It's coming from Paul Violas. It's not coming from HPD. I'm calling you out. We're going to send out a picture. You've just been listening to information, some exceptional police work. We need to do a better job as America's community, and we need to get involved in this. We got a lot of good information here, Detective. Do we not? A, a lot of information. Um, when you're able to um, provide, not only did Sergeant Miller have the sketch, but he enhanced it to allow the viewers and allow the audience to, to be able to see what, in the eyes of that sexual assault victim, that's who she saw. And as we progress through age, this is who he should look like. So I think um, this is far and beyond um, the gravity of where we were at first. Well, we're going to take this forward. We're going to take a quick break. and we come back, I'm going to be asking my panel to give a message right from them to you, to our listening audience, to everyone here in the great city of Houston, but also to everybody listening to the show right now and to the people you're going to share it with. I'm going to ask them to give you their closing message on this case and what we need here in the city of Houston you to do so we bring this closure. So we give Cheryl and Andy the justice they deserve and their families the closure that they desperately need. Stay with me. We'll be right back. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. Detective Shorten is trying something different. Familiar DNA is something new. Suppose investigators have a potential suspect, but not enough evidence to compel a DNA sample. But a relative of that suspect will share his DNA with police, and enough genetic markers match to show a relationship. That individual profile could be used as probable cause to go and get a DNA sample from the actual targeted person. Welcome back to Security Matters. I'm Paul Violas, and you have been listening to one incredible case, the Lover's Lane case here in the city of Houston. As we close for today, I'm really going to begin and not end. We're going to leave information on the table, and I'm going to implore you to get involved. I'm going to implore you to listen, to observe, to view the information that we're going to use through the power of CBS News Radio and the CBS brand and CBS Audio, and we're going to get this information out. But I'm going to toss first to Chief Dobbins. Chief, what is your message to the American audience right now? Yeah, so just in closing, first, uh, you know, obviously I want to thank all detectives over literally the last 30 years that have worked this case. And many are retired, many have moved on, uh, but I'm sure they've never forgotten this case despite them uh, retiring from our department. So I want to thank them for all the work they did in the beginning throughout uh, and now for our investigators and our cold case squad now that are working the case. Thank you for the job they're doing. I think what the message I want to get out is, you know, technology changes over the years. Uh, like we stated earlier in 1990, uh, we couldn't do the things we can do today uh, with DNA, with with all type of, uh, of forensic science. And so, uh, you know, we, we're going to take advantage of that. The good thing about this case is there was a lot of evidence left at that scene. Uh, there were many, many items left that were that were handled, dealt with, and touched by the suspect, and, and those are things that are still evidence in our in our evidence room right now today. Nothing goes away in a murder case; we keep it forever. And as t as technology improves, we'll be able to improve our our techniques in processing that evidence. So, we always have that in our back pocket that we're always praying for that someone would develop a better technique, something that we can we can process. Uh, something even further than what we can year to year. So that's always our hope. But what I want to say to the public is, you know, so, like Paula said, and, and all of us on this panel have said, uh, you know, this, this person didn't just do one crime, and I don't even think this person did two. I think this person was a serial. Uh, because of the control, because of the techniques that he used uh, on this murder scene, it was all about uh, uh, control of the two, of the two victims. And during the uh, sexual assault uh, at the other location, it was also all about control. That's what this, this individual was about. That doesn't just stop. He, he didn't just stop the next day and decide, okay, I'm going to go back to work and never do this again. So there's very, very likely there's other, 
victims out there, there's other victims of sexual assault or attempted sexual assault, that if they look at this composite that we have, that maybe they'll, something will, will spark in their mind and they'll be able to, uh, to remember. And we want them to come forward because, uh, you know, th this is how we solve cases. We solve with connectors. And sometimes when you come to a dead end in one case, a connector case takes off uh, with with evidence in that case. So, I guess my message to the public is, you know, this both of these families uh, need need closure. Uh, obviously, they they've dealt with the passing of, of their children and, and their loved ones for 30 years, but you never really get closure until until you actually get this case solved. Uh, I don't. I've never had a member of my family murdered, but I've been told that by so many family members that. Despite what we do and despite what they know, until they actually get closure with an arrest or they know what person did this, they really are not complete. So Thank you, Chief. That's, that's what I would ask. Thank you, Chief. Lieutenant, your message to the public. What do you want to know? I just want the public to know that uh, you know, we really need their help in this case. And if anybody remembers anything during that time period, um, even like the Chief was saying, you know, if somebody was a victim of sexual assault and never reported it and they see the sketch, if they're willing to come forward, if it looks like that person that did the, did the crime to them, um, just help us out, you know, because they can help us solve this case. And without their help, you know, we may just be relying on DNA technology, but it may not help us until we get some more assistance from the community. Thank you, Lieutenant. Sergeant? Thank you, Paul. <clears throat> I agree with the chief. Um, I believe this guy didn't begin and end with Terracotta and Lover's Lane. Um, we've worked serial killers at in, in the Houston Police Department Homicide Division, and, and I can tell you technology does change, but the MO, the way a person acts, the way a crook acts, the way he commits his crimes doesn't. They usually do things the exact same way. They might change up a little, but they usually act in the same way. And, and as the chief said, I believe this guy's uh, acted before. Didn't begin and end there. Um, and I think there's somebody out there that has a related case that we just didn't find, and, and we looked. There's gonna be one out there. And, and lastly, um, you know, in the game of poker, we, we said from, from way back that we're all in on this case. Uh, whatever comes our way, including uh, this broadcast, we're all in. We'll, we'll do whatever it takes to put the guy that, that perpetrated this behind bars. And if he is deceased, that's fine. We'd like to identify him all the same. It would give that family closure that they so desperately need. So uh, I'll end with that. And once again, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Sergeant. Detective, why don't you bring this home for us? What's your message? First, Detective, what's your message you want all our listeners to know? What do you want to walk away with? And now, most important, how do they get a hold of you? Who do they call? What is the mechanism someone needs to report something to you? We can't let evilness um, win. And we're not going to allow evilness to win. And so we impede the audience to, um, um, to search yourselves and, and try to see if you can find out or determine who this individual may be. If you do know, we ask that you call the Houston Police Department cold case, and the number is 713. 308-3618, or you can also email our cold case department at cold, C-O-L-D dot C-A-S-E-H-P-D at HoustonPolice.org. Thank you. Thank you. And as we close this, I'm going to leave everybody with these thoughts. We have a picture. We have a DNA match. We have a description. We have an exceptional amount of evidence. Now we're going to take that exceptional amount of police work and we're gonna put this out to the media. We're gonna use the power of the media. This is something that I can't emphasize enough to everyone here and to everybody listening. What you're seeing now is unprecedented. It's a partnership between police and media. And it's using the intellect and the power of good, solid police work like you've heard here today and the, inc the incredibly extraordinary distribution panel uh, power of, of a CBS news radio and the Fraternal Order Police. I, I want to thank uh, Joe Gamaldi, who is the, the president of the um, Houston FOP and, and the great membership uh, here at the Houston FOP for allowing us to be here. Um, I also want to thank Joe because Joe is the, is the vice president of the, of the National Fraternal Order Police. And as we talk about this information, the FOP, um, uh, that something that Joe has set up, the FOP will be able to share this with all their members. So now we're taking this to police departments across the entire country that never would have seen it. 
and we're taking it to the public that never would have seen it. And we're starting something right now with this, which is true community involvement, which is really, really important. The bottom line, and I will leave everyone listening with this, someone knows who did this. We're gonna send this picture out, and we expect, I expect, like the police here in Houston humbly hope that you will call, I expect you to do the right thing. I expect you to get on the phone or send an email because someone knows. And you may know someone who, who knows, but we want to make sure we get this case solved. So I want to thank, obviously, I'd like to thank you know, Chief Acevedo, certainly Joe Gamaldi, the, the, the Houston FOP and the membership, my extraordinary panel, and our staff from New York that flew down uh, from CBS News Radio. So on behalf of everybody from Security Matters and CBS News Radio, thank you all for today. Be safe, be well, God bless. Thanks for listening to Security Matters with Paul Violis. The podcast is produced by Seth Nyman and CBS News Radio. For more podcasts from CBS News, visit cbsaudio.com slash podcasts. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.